Hey everybody, and welcome to the third episode of SFD's series on Vietnam, the world at war. Right up front, I've got an announcement that's going to appeal to at least one of my two fans named Blaine. That is that I'm going to keep the whole introductory section to three minutes flat. If you're using Pocket Casts or another app that can skip the first bit of an episode, dial it in for 180 seconds and it will get you there. I'll be doing the same thing for the short shows and the talks, which should make this thing easier all around. These are the most laborious shows we've done yet, so make sure that you are doing your bit and rating, reviewing, and sharing them. We've got 42 pages of outline to cover this show, but by golly, this time we're making it all the way to the cold open and beyond. I'm Jonathan Coombs. We're talking about geopolitics and Vietnam in the 30s and 40s, and this is Safe for Democracy. America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. ¿Para qué sirve entonces la civilización? ¿Para qué sirve la conciencia del hombre? ¿Para qué sirven las Naciones Unidas? But these differences were all forgotten in one unshakable unity of determination to find a way to end war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. Across the world, we're hunting down the killers and we're showing them the definition of American justice. There is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. We have an obligation to be of help where we can to freedom fighters, and lovers of freedom and democracy from Afghanistan to Nicaragua. The United States has no intention of determining the precise form of Iraq's new government. That choice belongs to the Iraqi people. Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. To start us off here, I've got a correction to make. I said that a particular incident between an American ship and a Vietnamese fort in 1861 was our first military involvement in that country. It turns out I was off by 16 years. One of the new books I've got is called Last Reflections on a War, another one from Bernard Fall. Or sort of from him. Fall went back to Vietnam a last time in the late 1960s maybe feeling fatalistic because he'd been diagnosed with a life-threatening disease and barely made it out of an attack therefrom a little bit earlier. He was on patrol with American Marines in a place in Anam called The Street Without Joy, which is also the title of a book he wrote that we'll be relying on when we get to the French War. During that patrol, he stepped on a landmine, a bouncing Betty, and became one of the many, many reporters to die trying to understand and explain to the world what was happening in Vietnam. The tape from his audio recorder, which he was using to take notes at the time, is available, and we'll eventually listen to some of it, even though I've been putting it off since, by this point, Fall is starting to feel like an old friend to me. In any case, his wife Dorothy, an American he met while he was studying in the U.S., put together his unpublished notes and essays and half-finished products into this book, Last Reflections, which has a lot to offer us this show. The first thing is this earlier U.S. involvement. During the time of the last independent Vietnamese emperors, in 1845, the Vietnamese were all set to put to death one French bishop, Dominique Lefebvre, in Hue. 
It wasn't the first or the last time that they'd try to eliminate this pesky and very pro-French bishop. It wasn't the last because Captain John Mad Jack Percival, sailing the USS Constitution, got wind of the planned execution. He pulled over into Da Nang, sent his marines ashore, took a bunch of top officials hostage, and forced the Viet Imperial Administration to release the bishop. This one's even more of an echo through the ages, because it would be marines waiting ashore at Da Nang in 1965 that began the U.S.'s out-and-out commitment of troops to the Vietnam War. The second set of stuff that Fall has to offer us, stuff that I hadn't got to even in La Couture's biography of Ho, is sort of esoterica about Ho Chi Minh that I thought was either worth hearing for the show, or, really more likely, just cool interesting junk. First is that we know, given the state of intelligence services before World War II, and the number of times Ho changed his pseudonym, in the dozens, made it very hard for anyone to track him. He was reported dead or captured half a dozen times, and during each of those, the Western intelligence agencies were split over who had actually died and whether they'd done it at all. Well, the Surete, which I think have called the French Colonial Secret Police, but which was actually their sort of equivalent to the FBI, and therefore their de facto secret police in the colonies, to the extent that Wikipedia alleges that the Surete was the progenitor of both Scotland Yard and the FBI, but that might be down to a Francophile editor. Anyway, the French Surete had one way to make sure that they'd got their man. It's fallen out with the rise of electronic fingerprinting, but for a long time there existed a criminological study of earlobes, which are apparently as unique as fingertips. When Fall writes about the confusion around Ho's life story, he says, quote, His birth dates are mangled as today, month, and year, and the London Daily Worker in 1932 published an eloquent obituary of Comrade Nguyen I Kwok, Ho's pseudonym at the time, which led many sources to speak later of a second Ho Chi Minh, who was at least as mysterious as the presumed second assassin of President Kennedy. In actual fact, however, the ever-vigilant French Shrite got a close-up photograph of one of Ho's ears in the early 1920s, when he called on a senior French police official in Paris, probably the Paul Arnaud that we've already heard of, and I am assured that the more recent pictures perfectly matched that early one, unquote, meaning that Ho was always Ho. Second on Ho Chi Minh, I said that after he escaped from Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang's crackdown on the communists in Canton, he had a brief European tour, which is what I gathered from La Couture's biography. It turns out it was a little more interesting than that. From Fall, quote, He mysteriously showed up in Brussels at a communist-sponsored congress against imperialism, traveled on to Switzerland and even fascist Italy, worked in a Berlin racked by the financial crash of 1929 and the rise of Nazism, probably touched base in France, and then, just as suddenly, reappeared in the Far East via the Trans-Siberian Railroad." Unquote. Finally, I said that Ho got representation from a British lawyer, and that that lawyer later helped him escape from Hong Kong after his capture by the British colonial police. All of that's still true, but what I didn't know is how much of a cause celeb Ho managed to be even then. As Fall wrote, quote, in the genteel world of Anglo-Saxon law, legality once more prevailed. Ho's court-appointed lawyer, Frank Lowesby, argued that Ho was a political refugee, and thus not subject to extradition to Indochina, where he'd been sentenced to death in absentia. The case went on appeal all the way to the Privy Council, the British equivalent of the Supreme Court, where Ho's side was brilliantly argued by Sir Stafford Cripps, and Ho indeed was found not to be subject to extradition." Unquote. On another pre-show kind of point, I want to introduce a topic that I haven't touched on much, but that will become more and more important as we move into the 40s, 50s, and 60s. That is, 
Why did Ho settle on communism? Apart from that, the Third International was anti-colonial, given that the U.S., for example, was also anti-colonial, at least in theory. Why did the Vietnamese seem to take so readily to communism? Once Ho was in power, too, what did communism do for or to the average Vietnamese person? And how did those actions compare to what the French and then the U.S. orchestrated in the supposedly democratic but in fact autocratic South? On the first point, Fall takes a page and a half to ask why Ho, when he was still young and in Vietnam, decided to sign up for a French ocean liner rather than heading to China or Japan. Why he, in effect, quote, opted for the West against the East, and eventually for Moscow against Peking, unquote. At the time, there were several different Vietnamese nationalist movements that looked towards their more powerful neighbors for examples of how to combat Western imperialism. The Japanese had beaten the Russians in war, and the Kuomintang seemed to offer a Chinese kind of resistance. Fall argues that even at this point, Ho saw the proto-fascist Japanese in the also sort of proto-fascist Kuomintang as performing not a new Asian independence, but the same autocratic and Asian imperialist roles that they'd always occupied. The Japanese, at the time, were brutally colonizing Korea, and Manchukuo, their territory in Chinese Manchuria. The Chinese, too, were Vietnam's perennial historical oppressors. And the subsequent events of history, Japan's move to create an East Asian empire, and communist China's internal colonization of Tibet and Inner Mongolia, have pretty much borne out Ho's suspicions at the time. What's more, in a book published on Ho in Hanoi in 1966, there appears the passage, quote, what attracts Ho in those Western countries is their ideology of freedom, of the sovereignty of the people, of democracy, of science and technology. He thought that to fight the French colonialists with the help of the Japanese militarists would be to hunt the tiger only to be eaten by the wolves, unquote. And that written in 1966, when the U.S. already had hundreds of thousands of soldiers in South Vietnam. When Ho arrived in the West, moreover, what he found in Paris and London were people who spoke at length about democracy, but were loath to offer it to their subject peoples. In the United States, while well, he continued to respect and hold out hope for that country until the 1950s, or even the 1960s, as that quote shows, he saw a systematic oppression of blacks and other colored races that exactly paralleled colonial attitudes in the rest of the world. Ho, for periods during the First World War, quote, did return to sea on the deadly transatlantic wartime runs, visiting Boston, New York, and other East and Gulf Coast ports, because he later wrote vivid accounts of what his later right-hand man Pham Van Dong calls, quote, the barbarities and ugliness of American capitalism, the Ku Klux Klan mobs, the lynching of Negroes, unquote, and unquote. There might have been a point at which democratic socialism, or an enlightened capitalism, could or would have captured Ho's imagination, but there was only one ideology at the time that taught immediate revolution, freedom for the colonized, and which practiced what it preached. And that was the communism of the Third International. If anything else was needed to push Ho in that direction, as Fall says, Ho and his compatriots, quote, had seen the whites, and not only the French, Britishers and even Americans as well at their worst, dying and being afraid of it, black marketeering and whoring through four warriors, rebelling against their commanders, discriminating against them, and above all, against the Negroes on racial grounds. They had also seen how much power was really growing out of the barrels of guns, unquote. The other thing, which doesn't speak so much as to why Ho was communist, but to how he was communist, is that he never focused on the doctrinal debates, the ones that separated, for example, Trotskyites from Stalinists, 
and the ones that begat purges that Ho totally avoided, even though he was in Moscow during some of the most dangerous years. Ho was concerned above all with effective action rather than theoretical minutia. As Fall writes again, quote, As one peruses Ho's writings 40 years later, one can only be amazed at how little they offer. Most of them are tirades about some obscure French official in some remote province who beat up his houseboy, raped the kitchen maid's daughter, and closed the village school. It would be difficult to pin down the essential Ho in a small booklet of his quotations, as was done by the Chinese Cultural Revolution in that bestseller of the millennium, Quotations from Chairman Mao. For Ho, throughout his whole life, did not seek to convert the world to anything, except to accepting the existence of an independent Vietnam, united from north to south, unquote. The last thing in this bit of esoterica is that that single-minded focus on action didn't prevent Ho from being loyal to the Communist International, and from following its dictates, even when it pained him to do so. I gave you Ho's outline of the new Popular Front strategy in 1939 last show, but what I didn't tell you, because I didn't know, is that he did it against his personal feelings and wishes. That new common turn policy, the so-called Dimitrov Line, which called for the formation of broad fronts, in which communist parties would ally with the bourgeoisie against the fascists and the Trotskyites, who Stalin had lumped in with the fascists, was pushed out in the mid-1930s. According to Fall, quote, that new policy was a particularly bitter pill for the colonial communist movements, for it meant forgoing the advocacy of outright independence in favor of a policy of cooperation. For a man who had, all his life, advocated nothing else, the application of the Dimitrov line was a real watershed. This was probably Ho's nadir. He had to forswear publicly all he had stood for, had to cooperate with the people he hated most, and he had to sell out his Trotskyist allies of yesterday." Unquote. We'll get to it a bit later, but Ho would be able to plot his own course soon enough, once the Soviet-Nazi-Molotov-Ribbentrop pact had gone through and then been broken, destroying, for a while, Moscow's credibility and its ability to enforce the Comintern's directives. Along 600 miles of her eastern frontier, from Switzerland to the North Sea, France, for the last eight years, has been building the mightiest defenses the world has ever seen. These men, called at dawn from their barracks behind the line near Metz, are heading for exercises inside the Maginot Line. The garrison which day and night mans the underground fortresses is called too. The Maginot Line has been photographed before, but this is the first time that the newsreel cameras have been privileged to see actual troop exercises, a full rehearsal of what France would do if she were attacked from the east. Such is the mighty frontier of modern France. A frontier written in steel and concrete, the only writing that no man dare rub out. And France's Maginot line blazes into action. First things first, as we get back into the historical flow of the show, is a real quick primer on world history to get us up to 1939, because it's about to bear real directly on what's going on in Indochina. Let's start with China, given that it's right next to Vietnam, and our characters have been in and out of it over and over again. Remember the Chinese Civil War that we mentioned last show? It starts with the Kuomintang against the Chinese Communist Party on 1st August 1927. And even that's really a simplification, because it's been raging between the Kuomintang and the warlords left in the wake of the imperial collapse since the 1910s. But anyway, the Japanese end up taking great advantage of the chaos in China invading Chinese Manchuria in 1931 and taking it over. In 1934, Mao and the Communists' long march begins, 
they head for the far interior of the country and begin in earnest the guerrilla war that will, with interruptions, eventually deliver them all of China. In 1937, the Japanese invade China proper, and they won't leave again until 1945. We mentioned this last show because their invasion ends up resulting in a truce between the Kuomintang and the Chinese communists, which allows the Vietnamese communists to operate in South China again. In Europe, things had been deteriorating even longer, since before Ho even left Paris. In Italy, the Italian Fasci of Combat is founded in March 1919. In 1921, the fascists become an official Italian political party, and by 1922, Mussolini is in power in Rome, becoming a virtual dictator pretty much immediately. In 1926, he outlaws all opposition parties and consolidates the power that he will hold until he's executed by the Allies in 1945. Hitler becomes head of the Nationalsozialistische Deutsche Arbeiterpartie, the National Socialist German Workers' Party, in 1921. The Beer Hall Putsch takes place in Munich in 1923. The SS is formed in 1925. The first Nuremberg rally takes place in 1927. The Great Depression tees up the Nazis in 1929, and the party becomes the second largest and then the largest in the Reichstag in 1930 and 1932. Hitler becomes Chancellor of Germany in 1933, and with the help of the Reichstag fire passes the Enabling Act, making him a virtual dictator in March of that year. He names himself Führer in 1934 reoccupies the Rhineland in March 1936 in contravention of the Versailles Peace Treaty. The Axis is formed in October by treaty and November of that year. Likewise, in 1936, General Francisco Franco raises the army in Spanish Morocco to oppose the young Second Spanish Republic, sparking that country's civil war. It's a first test of the international community's willingness to support the principles of the League of Nations and oppose the rise of international fascism. That community and the League fail miserably, with the democracies afraid to provide material assistance to the leftist forces of the Republic, which receive official aid only from the USSR. Democracy-loving partisans of all the Western countries, though, form their own volunteer units and ship out for Spain, including the famous American Abraham Lincoln Brigade and George Orwell, to name a couple of names you might know. Franco's phalangist forces, on the other hand, receive tanks, planes, ammunition, and weapons from Germany and Italy leading to a decisive fascist victory by 1939. The Anschluss makes Austria part of Greater Germany in March 1938. The Munich Conference, where the West gave away the Czech Sudetenland in September of that year, and then the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact and the invasion of Poland in 1939, which kicks off World War II. A year of thunderous eruption. Again a year in which one continuous news story overshadows all others. War. War in China. Japanese planes circle over Hankow. A puff of smoke rises, a crash, then another and another, until the great pall of disaster spreads over all China. War in Spain. Squadrons of black-winged bombers over Barcelona, and in a few moments more than 400 have been torn to fragments. The world shakes a little as the barriers come down, and the Nazi machines steamrollers ancient Austria into a province of the German Reich. Then Godesburg, with the ominous roar of Germany's army mobilizing. And as the negotiations reach a deadlock, Britain prepares. The German invasion of Poland in September 1939 triggered declarations of war from both the British and the French. 
They were supposed to be the guarantors of Polish independence, but the German attack is too swift, and the French and British wills are too feeble to do much about it. What prevails in Europe for the next seven months is often characterized as the Sitzkrieg, the sitting war, since nothing much seemed to happen. But what in fact went on is that the Germans moved their troops and tanks around, while the British and French did not nearly enough. On the 10th of May, 1940, Hitler launched his lightning war, his Blitzkrieg, through the Low Countries and the Ardennes, mirroring nearly move for move the Schlieffen Plan, which governed the German opening attack in World War I. Churchill took over for Chamberlain three days later, with the latter clearly having failed to contain German aggression. The German Wehrmacht swept around the French Maginot Line, encircling the main body of French forces and obtaining an armistice just two months later on the 22nd of June, 1940. This was important for Vietnam, and indeed for all of overseas France, Outremer, because the new collaborationist government of France, seated in Vichy in the southern unoccupied zone, was technically still in control of the empire. From Logoval, quote, A vast empire it was. In 1940, it ranked second in size only to the British, extending some 6 million square miles and with an overseas population of 80 million. The island of Madagascar alone was bigger than metropolitan France. The colonies of Equatorial and West Africa together were as large as the United States. In the Middle East, the French were a major presence, and they had holdings as well in the Caribbean and the Pacific. And of course, there was Indochina, the pearl of the empire, rich in rubber plantations and rice fields. As the farthest flung of the key French possessions, it, along with Algeria, administered as part of France proper, conferred great power status on France and, it was thought, gave her an important voice in global affairs. As a whole, the empire took more than a third of all French trade in the 1930s, a figure inflated by the fact that the Depression caused business leaders to fall back on colonial markets. Colonial troops made up 11% of mobilized men in 1939, unquote. We won't get too deeply into it, because it really doesn't bear that heavily on what will go on in French Vietnam later, but what proceeded was a years-long fight over who and what France really was. Was it the puppet government run by the hero of World War I, Marshal Pétain? Was it what was represented by the French resistance in the Maquis? Or was it the Free French, a patently undemocratic movement run by the French general Charles de Gaulle? We know that in the end it was de Gaulle and the Free French, but that situation would not prevail in Indochina, where the Vichy government would hold sway until the end of the war. This is, again, something we'll come back to, but just keep in mind that the rapid collapse of French military resistance and the seeming eagerness of supposed heroes of the Republic like Pétain to knuckle under to the Nazis left Americans in general, and FDR in particular, totally disgusted with the French. Whereas Churchill always had a pretty level-headed view of European power politics and what the post-war would have to look like, the French defeat hardened FDR's nascent anti-colonial attitudes and made him determined to deprive post-war France of whatever parts of Outremer that he could. Organized resistance in France was no longer possible. The government faced two alternatives, retire to North Africa and carry on from there, or give up the struggle. France's leaders were old and tired, and the oldest and most tired was Marshal Pétain, egged on by men like Laval, who saw in a German victory his chance for personal power. On June 16th, Pétain asked for an armistice. The news is carried to Hitler, who received this word of a great nation's fall in a characteristic manner. Also characteristic were his terms for the armistice. It must be signed in the coach where Marshal Foch met the defeated Germans in the last war. 
final price. A price that for centuries to come, the French won't forget. More than three-fifths of their country was to be blacked out by a military occupation. The remainder was to be controlled by a French government acceptable to Hitler. A tax of 400 million francs a day was to be imposed on the French people to support the German army of occupation. Nearly two million French prisoners of war were to be taken into Germany and kept there as hostages to work as slaves or rot of hunger, tuberculosis, or other diseases in concentration camps. Men deliberately and permanently separated from their families in order to decrease the French birth rate and thus eliminate France as a world power in future generations. Even before the fall of France and the creation of the Vichy government, the deteriorating situation in Europe at the end of spring 1940 bore directly and immediately on the situation in Indochina. Like we said earlier, the Japanese by this point had been fighting a war in and against China for years, and they were becoming increasingly frustrated by the supplies, provided mostly by the British and the Americans, that were sustaining the newly re-allied communists and Kuomintang nationalists by way of the border with Indochina. Indochina at the time was governed by one General Georges Catreau, who had zero sympathy for the Japanese or the Axis, and who was in favor of keeping the supply routes open, allowing fully half of China's war material to make its way north through his ports and passes. The Japanese, even before the armistice and the establishment of the Vichy government, began to pressure Catreau militarily to close off those shipments, and the French general had few forces with which to oppose them. In the end, as Logeval writes, quote, Coutreau succumbed to Japanese pressure to sharply limit shipments of weapons, but food and other supplies continued to arrive, and the Japanese began to think that only by seizing Indochina could they stop the flow. Moreover, Indochina could provide Imperial Japan with significant supplies of rubber, tin, coal, and rice, all important in ending her dependence upon foreign sources of vital strategic raw materials. Geostrategically, meanwhile, Indochina could serve as an advanced base for operations against the far eastern possessions of other western colonial powers. For senior Japanese leaders, in short, the events in Europe opened up glorious new possibilities. Hitler's victories, American ambassadors to Tokyo Joseph Grew noted, like strong wine have gone to their heads, unquote. Vichy, despite its own accommodation with the Axis, was terribly unhappy with the Japanese taking joint control of the Chinese border, and, according to Fall, quote, the Moribund Third Republic relieved Coutreau of his command on June 25th, the very day France signed an armistice with Germany, and replaced him with the tough and able Admiral Jean de Coe, who, when faced with similar Japanese demands, told his home government that he would rather fight and die than see Indochina, quote, reduced to becoming another Manchu Kuo, unquote, the Japanese territory in Manchuria, unquote, for the last time there. Coutreau had spent time in a German prison camp during World War I with General de Gaulle and they had an ongoing friendship. Catreau, freed from his technical obligations to Vichy, showed his colors by making his way from Indochina to French North Africa and joining the Free French. With its first achievements as far as limiting Chinese supplies in place, the Japanese moved quickly to propose the establishment of bases, coaling stations, and the garrison of troops in Indochina proper. French military power present in its colony was minimal, and the possibility of help from metropolitan France was totally non-existent so Decaux had few avenues to hold off these new proposals. He and Vichy, which was just as reluctant to lose its position in Indochina, turned in their hour of need to the United States, which was, at this point, whatever FDR's feelings, 
unwilling to be drawn into another world war. From Logoval, quote, On June 19, 1940, the French ambassador in Washington put two questions to Undersecretary of State Sumner Wells. What would the United States do if Indochina came under Japanese attack? And in the meantime, would Washington provide immediate military assistance to Indochina in the form of 120 aircraft as well as anti-aircraft guns? The United States, Wells said, would do nothing that might provoke the outbreak of hostilities with Japan, and therefore would not act to thwart an attack on Indochina. She would provide no planes nor weapons. In that case, asked the French ambassador, what choice did Saigon have but to accept the Japanese demands? I will not answer you officially, Wells said, but that is what I would do in your place, unquote. On June 30th, Wells further informed the French ambassador that, quote, considering the general situation, the government of the United States did not believe that it could enter into conflict with Japan, and that, should the latter attack Indochina, the United States would not oppose such an action, unquote. Fall maintains that the U.S. refusal was based on an unwillingness to get entangled, but also on a belief that the Japanese were, in effect, bluffing, that they didn't have the men or the attention to really move on Indochina, and they were wrong. With U.S. help unforthcoming, Decoe told the Japanese that it wasn't really his place to be bargaining anyway, and he said that they should take the matter up with the Vichy government in France. Vichy, in turn, spent the summer appealing again and again to the U.S. for help. But as Logval records, quote, On August 22, 1940, Sumner Wells let Vichy know that the United States was unable to come to the aid of Indochina, but that it, quote, appreciated the difficulties with which the French government was faced and did not consider that it would be justified in reproaching France if certain military facilities were accorded Japan, unquote, and unquote. Vichy, quote, signed an accord with Japan that recognized Japan's preeminent position in the Far East and granted the Japanese, in principle, certain transit facilities in Tonkin, subject to agreement between the military authorities on the spot. This last qualification gave Decoe one more opening for further delays and parleys, unquote. On the 5th of September, 1940, then, General Martin of France and General Nishihara of Japan began negotiations, which on the French side were designed to delay total capitulation to the Japanese. Those negotiations dragged on until the 22nd of September, when the Japanese attacked French forts along the Chinese border in order to force the issue. As Bernard Fall writes, quote, Japanese troops stationed in neighboring Kwangtung and Kwangxi in China suddenly attacked the French border forts at Langsan and Dongdang, while Japanese aircraft bombed Haiphong Harbor outside of Hanoi, and on the evening of the 24th began to land troops there. Outnumbered and outgunned, the border forts fought to the last cartridge, losing 800 men in two days, unquote. With the border forts taken, the Japanese general in charge, Nishihara, called the attack off and told the French that it had been a misunderstanding. Vichy cabled Decoe to give in, and Decoe told his negotiator general Martin that the time for heroics was over and that they'd have to knuckle under. Fall says, though, that the brief, determined resistance did, at the very least, reduce overall Japanese demands. Reinforcements are being rushed to the scene of action as the disagreement between Japan and China rages furiously. In Shanghai, refugees pick their way through the tangled mass of barbed wire, 
in an effort to escape the siege of battle. Deserted entrenchments mark the path of skirmish. Bullet-riddled buildings tell a tale of disaster. The dead and wounded lie about the streets while the flaming inferno swallows all within its reach, destroying the humble dwellings. Thousands of refugees flee the stricken area on flat cars with their meager belongings. Children are terrified. The older folks surround the incoming passenger cars, begging a morsel of food. Holding their baskets out and buying for help, they present a tragic picture. The relief societies are extending every effort to feed and clothe the youngsters. After all, it isn't their fault. And are the rice kitchens popular? These poor kiddies probably haven't eaten anything in days. Meanwhile, the great armies move forward. Town after town is destroyed. Heavy fire reduces the once flourishing farmlands to waste. The Japanese launch an attack. The Chinese retreat from their hastily constructed defenses. The trains rush the injured to safety under the protection of machine gun fire. Great guns roar across the countryside, hurling their deadly missiles. It's the story of a war that technically is not a war. In the end, the Japanese received only three airfields, an occupation force of 6,000 men, and a limit of 25,000 men allowed to transit through the French territory. The French and Japanese also signed a treaty that gave Tokyo special economic privileges and transit facilities in the French colony, while Japan recognized permanent French interests in Indochina. At this point, while the French administration continued to administer its colony, it had only a semblance of real sovereignty. The Japanese negotiated directly with Vichy, rather than with Decaux, and when it needed further concessions quickly, it forced the issue. In July 1941, for example, Japan took de facto control over all major air and seaports, and on the eve of Pearl Harbor, Japanese troops surrounded the remaining French garrisons and told them they could either be cool or be dead. They decided, following Decaux's lead, to be cool. The U.S., as was pretty typical, waited until the horse had already escaped, traveled to colonial Indochina, and invited the Japanese in to try shutting the barn door. We'd been watching the erosion of French control in Vietnam, as we've seen passively, all the while waking up to that we were eventually going to have to confront Tokyo, whether to defend British interests in Southeast Asia or our own in the way of our Philippine colony. FDR decided that the takeover of air and seaports in July 1941, which we just mentioned, was as far as he wanted things to go. And in response, he froze all Japanese assets in the United States and embargoed petroleum exports there. The Japanese ambassador met with FDR, and Roosevelt offered him this compromise. Indochina would be totally neutralized, with the caveat that the Japanese would be able to buy all the raw materials they wanted from Indochina on the basis of an open market. As Paul notes, FDR's compromise did nearly nothing for the Japanese. The U.S. would be able to continue smuggling supplies to the Chinese through a neutral Indochina, and while Tokyo could use Vietnamese rubber, what it really needed was petroleum, and that could only be had in Java and the rest of the Dutch East Indies. Like we also mentioned just a minute ago, the Japanese went ahead and did what they wanted in Indochina. On December 6, 1941, FDR sent a letter to Emperor Hirohito. It read, quote, more than a year ago, Your Majesty's government concluded an agreement with the Vichy government by which five or six thousand Japanese troops were permitted to enter northern French Indochina for the protection of Japanese troops which were operating against China further north. 
and this spring and summer the Vichy government permitted further Japanese military force to enter into southern French Indochina for the common defense of French Indochina. I think I am correct in saying that no attack has been made upon Indochina, nor has any been contemplated. During the past few weeks, it has become clear to the world that Japanese military, naval, and air forces have been sent to southern Indochina in such large numbers as to create a reasonable doubt on the part of other nations that this continuing concentration in Indochina is not defensive in its character." Unquote. Roosevelt continued that letter by proposing another set of agreements to neutralize Indochina and remove Japanese troops there. Japan, if you're paying attention to the dates, had at this point already had its fleet underway, moving east across the Pacific. The following day, they crippled the U.S. naval forces at Pearl Harbor, and the U.S. entered the war. Despite the sudden widening of U.S. interest, though, as Fall writes, quote, As will be seen in the following pages, and for us the following audio, President Roosevelt's preoccupation with Indochina and the attitude of the French there did not abate until his dying day, unquote. December 7, 1941. Across the blue waters of Pearl Harbor, the Pacific Fleet rides serenely at anchor. There is peace and quiet in Honolulu. There is a hope for peace in the hearts of all Americans. There is a forceful plea for peace in the words of the President of the United States. But his last message to Japan's Emperor falls on deaf ears. Grim silence is the reply. No outward sign reveals what may be the nature of the Mikado's answer. In Washington, Secretary of State Hull continues peace negotiations with Jap Ambassador Nomura and Special Envoy Kurosu, not knowing that genial smiles mask murder in their hearts. Here is the motion picture record released by the United States Navy of the havoc wrought by the Japs' sneak sky and sea raid on Pearl Harbor, America's mid-Pacific naval bastion. On December 7, 1941, Japan, like its infamous Axis partners, struck first and declared war afterwards. Costly to our Navy was the loss of war vessels, airplanes and equipment, but more costly to Japan was the effectiveness of its foul attack in immediately unifying America in its determination to fight and win the war thrust upon it and to win the peace that will follow. The Jap Speaking about the situation in Vietnam on the ground, Politically, things were not so hot for Ho Chi Minh and company, despite the fall of France. Decoe tried to keep up the appearances of French control in the colony after the Japanese moved in, and, and one of his methods there too was by serious repression of political dissidents. Arms of the Indochinese Communist Party, acting what looks like outside of Ho's go-ahead, tried to start uprisings in both Tonkin and Cochin, China, in light of the Japanese occupation, which were put down brutally by the French. Hundreds of ICP members and cadres were imprisoned and executed, and much of the party structure was damaged, especially in the South. Since we're going to talk now about how both colonial powers, the French and the Japanese, managed their situation together in Vietnam, it might be worth exploring exactly what the situation in colonial Vietnam was like at this point. Bernard Fall, in his book Two Vietnams, writes a pretty long defense of the French colony in Indochina, or at least a defense of the actual conditions there versus FDR's continual characterization that they were terrible. I think it's worth getting into this for reasons that I'll explain in a minute here, but I think we should start with a quote that Bernard Fall cites in his book. 
Quote, Yet a severe Indian critic of the West and former Indian ambassador to Egypt and Red China later appraised French performance in far less absolute terms. Quoting from the Indian ambassador now, quote, In fact, during the first three decades of the 20th century, French administration of Indochina was as well run and as efficiently organized as the best colonial governments and created a vast system of roads, railways, and other communications facilities and economic measures meant to benefit large numbers. It also showed an interest in the history and culture of Indochina, preserving with care the monuments of the past, unquote. By the end of the 1930s, the period that that ambassador was talking about, the Vietnamese economy was, contrary to most of our conceptions of colonial economies as one-resource endeavors, was actually pretty diversified, and much more diversified than it would be for decades afterwards. Likewise, the colony made huge strides in literacy and health, using the Pasteur institutes that dotted the country to eradicate most endemic disease through vaccination and pushing reasonably effective public education, even if that bit them in the ass in the end. The French also extended metropolitan workers' rights, from the eight-hour day to the five-day week to restrictions on child labor to Vietnamese workers by the 1930s. As Fall reports, quote, when the International Labor Organization, then an organ of the League of Nations and now an agency of the UN, surveyed labor conditions in the Far East in 1937, it found that conditions in French Indochina were far better than those found everywhere else in the region. For example, independent Japan had no work time limit for men, and women and youths were limited to 11 hours of work a day, with no compulsory weekly rest periods. In China and Thailand, there were no restrictions at all." Unquote. Unlike virtually any other set of colonies in the world, including the Americas under the British, French colonized peoples could actually send members to Parliament. In practice, since Frenchmen in the colonies voted and only naturalized colonials could vote, most of the deputies from Indochina were still white Frenchmen. But as Fall notes, quote, in French Africa, where the same system operated but where the base of local citizenship was far larger, the preponderance of those elected to the French legislature were African and soon rose to key posts. A French Negro from Martinique, Gaston Monerville, has been president of the French Senate, i.e. number two man of the French Republic after de Gaulle, since 1947, unquote. That is, since 1947, in the time that Fall was writing the book, in the 1950s. As to why the colony didn't do so well in other respects, such as political freedoms, Fall has another pretty convincing argument. As he says, quote, it may be considered an axiom of colonial administration that no colonial government can export a better administrative system than it possesses at home, unquote. And given that the French government at home was incredibly unstable, so was the governorship of Indochina. There were 23 different governors from the time that they were instituted in 1902 until the end of 1945. Likewise, while some governors, notably Albert Soreau, who advocated full self-government in 1919, and Breivik, who served under the Accommodationist Popular Front from 1936 to 1939, seriously wanted to improve the lives and even the political autonomy of the Vietnamese, any change to their status was opposed not by metropolitan French people, but by colognes afraid of losing their status. For example, when the French moved to allow Vietnamese officers in the armed forces, a powerful cologne had this to say, quote, Either they will be worthy of becoming French officers, in which case their highest ideal will be to liberate the soil of their fatherland, and their most noble endeavor should be to throw us into the sea. Or those people will content themselves with getting their pay and wearing a beautiful uniform, while preserving a servant's soul. And in that case, I don't want them as officers in the French army." Unquote. After July 1941, after the Japanese moved in in force, 
both occupying colonial powers rolled out propaganda regimes, trying to convince the Vietnamese on one side that they were part of quote-unquote eternal France, except without the rights of metropolitans, and on the other that they were an integral part of the East Asian co-prosperity sphere, with exactly the same rights as all of the Japanese's other subject peoples, which was not very many. What helped the French with their case was that the colonial economy actually improved after the war broke out. Without metropolitan industry to rely on, the sparse industrial plant that the French had built in Vietnam, with factories for cement, rubber, pig iron, and simple steels, spooled into overdrive, both to meet domestic demand and to keep up with Decaux's propaganda-focused building projects. Decaux, meanwhile, improved the administration of the colony, let Vietnamese nationals into much higher echelons of government, and created a legislative body with a majority of Vietnamese members. What might seem inconsequential at first is that he also started a youth and sports movement to compete with similar Japanese initiatives. But Fall says that it, quote, gave hundreds of thousands of young Vietnamese a chance to develop discipline and a sense of leadership. More Viet Minh company commanders were to graduate from that Patainist youth corps than from all of the Viet Minh communist cadre schools, unquote. And while that smacks of colonial braggadocio, it actually rings true to me. I spent a lot of my time in the Peace Corps working with kids in a pseudo-scouting organization called the Eco Chavos, basically eco-young people. Part of our mission was to inculcate leadership, independence, and initiative into these kids. Unfortunately, our boss had no idea how to do that because Mexican culture at the present moment does the exact opposite. This isn't a bone-deep thing, a genetic thing, a racial thing. It's that Mexico's been run under top-down authoritarian states since before the conquest. From the revolution at the beginning of the last century through to the year 2000, it was run under a one-party system that worked to integrate everything in the country, from the smallest student group to the national unions under the singular authority of the office of the president. The one pseudo-independent national organization, the Catholic Church, is particularly unreformed here in Mexico and particularly authoritarian even at a parish level. So it was that my boss's idea of instilling leadership was to create elaborate scavenger hunts or obstacle courses where teachers, like me, screamed instructions at kids as they went from station to station. My fellow Peace Corps volunteers and I, who'd been involved in scouting and outdoorsmanship movements in the U.S., knew that this was the exact opposite of instilling leadership. We fought for years literally years to get games of Capture the Flag onto the schedule at our big biannual jamborees. That sounds insane, but after months with these kids, we developed an almost superstitious belief in the power of open-ended iterative games, if we could just get the go-ahead to use them. And we did, just one time. But that one time, we had hundreds of kids on two teams dividing themselves up into squads, electing leaders, running missions, coming to petition me, as referee, on rules, hashing it out among themselves when I stayed out of it. Hundreds of kids self-organizing spontaneously, because all you have to do as a quote-unquote leader is give them a tiny bit of structure and then stand the hell back. All of which is to say that Vietnam, because of the millennia-old rice-planting, village-based Confucian culture and political system that it had been operating under, had a similar aptitude for individual initiative as Mexico does now. The French started to break that pattern towards the end of the colony's life, and maybe they were even doing it better than the Viet Minh, who had to teach themselves first and their countrymen later. But it was too little, too late. Which is the end of the story for all of this French action in Vietnam. 
Bernard Fall might be right. And if there was a right way to administer a colony that you laid hands on in the days when territorial conquest was more or less kosher, though the 1880s was pushing that expiration date pretty hard, then maybe what the French were doing here was almost that right way. You'd want to bring the colony up to the educational and economic speed of the home country, and then make it part of the home country politically and legally, while trying to preserve its culture as against your own. Which the French were, at this point, doing. Most of the most important archaeological and anthropological work on Vietnam was done by Frenchmen during the colonial period. You could say that it was a matter of opportunity, since the Frenchmen had kept the Vietnamese from becoming archaeologists in their own country, but you can also recognize that the Vietnamese emperors at Hue just weren't preserving the remains of the Kingdom of Champa and other peoples in the country, and that otherwise they would have been lost. As Fall points out probably more than is good, the colonial question in 1960 was black and white, but at the beginning, back in these years in the 1930s and 1940s, it was much less so. And while the basic arrangement was always going to be unjust, what went on below that mantle has ample room for interpretation, even if we come out on the negative side in the end. In any case, the French came to the realization, or the inevitable tactic, of treating their Vietnamese colonials like Frenchmen far too late. They'd already trained up the generation of Vietnamese that would take their country back in the schools that they built and on foreign study in Paris in the 1910s, 20s, and 30s. The foundation of the colonial structure had already rotted away, no matter how grand the house they were now building on top of it. It's also worthwhile to note, as Fall does, that, quote, despite the relative merits of the Deco regime, it was in most respects a carbon copy of its Vichy masters. It was anti-Semitic, anti-Masonic, anti-Gaullist, and pro-Axis, although the warmth toward the Axis was greatly tempered by a racially based anti-Japanese bias, unquote, which is hardly a positive either. America prepares. All America alters its pattern of life and work to meet the demand for protection. Industry is a double step to supply the sinews of safety, the armaments of war that an embattled world must have if democracy is to survive. Mechanical genius joins with the muscle of millions of men, working to win for the ways of freedom, freedom to think, to speak, to rise, live, and plan with one's fellow man. America's vast resources are harnessed to the job of being the world arsenal for this and other democracies. Its present-day production of armaments is but a mere fraction of the great job that lies ahead. The flow of production in plant and shipyard gains speed. Vessels of all types, carriers, merchantmen, submarines, slip off the ways in growing numbers. And the beat of feet sounds over the land. Feet intent on training, on growing fit for whatever destiny holds ahead. Heroes, every one. Heroes by the million. Men who abandon home and vocations that they may be ready to defend democracy if necessary. Sturdy of body, firm in spirit. Seamen, Marines, soldiers, and flyers. A huge civilian army joins in this great defense program. Rigid rough work. The situation of the Indochinese Communist Party in 1941 was bad, but not as bad as you might think, given the crackdowns at the end of the Popular Front period when the war broke out in 39, and after the premature uprisings that Decoe put down in 1940. 
Cadres throughout Vietnam had been depleted through imprisonment and execution, but the party's top leadership had escaped to South China to fight another day. Ho and the rest of the party's top brass decided in early 1941 that they needed to hold a plenary meeting of the leadership, and that for symbolic reasons at the least, the get-together had to take place on Vietnamese soil. They slipped across the border in the early days of the year and set up shop in a cave near Pak Bo, in the highlands of Khao Bang province in the north of Tonkin. As Logoval writes, quote, The living conditions were austere. The group slept on planks of wood in the cave and had only one small oil lamp among them. The diet was mostly soup of corn and bamboo shoots, fortified by fish caught in the stream. Ho spent long hours reading, writing, and conducting meetings, all for the purpose of setting up a new communist-dominated united front and outlining a strategy for liberating Vietnam from foreign rule, unquote. Another broad front, nominally including pro-French Vietnamese, was an astute strategy at this point in time. By not calling for immediate resistance to French colonialism, it avoided taking a de facto pro-Japanese stance. Likewise, even at this early point, Ho was counting on the Japanese eventually fully overthrowing the French. The Allies would then take care of the Japanese, and Ho and his ICP-dominated coalition would be poised to take over their country at that moment, with both occupying powers defeated. In that interest, Ho and his collaborators, along with representatives of some other nationalist groups, formed the Vietnam Doc Lap Dong Min Hoi, the League for the Independence of Vietnam, or the Viet Minh. The group officially came into being on the 19th of May, Ho's birthday, 1941. Its only explicit concession to its communist backers was the group's flag, a single gold star in the middle of a stark red field. As Lugaval writes, quote, The result, notes historian Huynh Kim Khan, and now quoting the historian, quote, radical redefinition of the nature and tasks of the Vietnamese revolution, unquoting the historian, away from the class struggle and towards national liberation, unquote. It wasn't just in name either. While Ho and his boys did maintain near total control of the Viet Minh's leadership, they also pursued nationalist rather than communist ends. And the Viet Minh eventually came to encompass and include nearly every nationalist element in Vietnam, regardless of left-right political affiliation. Like I said a little while ago, Pearl Harbor took place on December 7, 1941, and the U.S. declared war the day after. I assume that most of you know the general outlines of the war in the Pacific after that, or have the wherewithal to look it up, and I'm definitely not going to get into a play-by-play of either theater. What is interesting, though, is that the U.S. and FDR especially tended to chalk up the situation in the Pacific to European colonialism. As Logoval writes, quote, European colonialism had helped to bring on both the First World War and the current war, FDR was convinced, and the continued existence of empires would in all likelihood result in future conflagrations. Therefore, all colonies should be given their independence. The president's son, Elliot, records FDR as saying, some months after the U.S. entry into the war, Don't think for a moment, Elliot, that Americans would be dying in the Pacific tonight if it hadn't been for the short-sighted greed of the French and the British and the Dutch, unquote, and unquote. It's curious and difficult to defend the idea that European designs on the East, however bad, somehow caused the Japanese to pursue their own empire there. Likewise, FDR came to blame the French for Japanese attacks into the South Asian Pacific, since they used Vietnam as a springboard. All well and good, except that FDR had helped to prevent the U.S. from assisting the French in resisting the Japanese just a few months prior. 
Likewise, the British and the French had tried to get the U.S. into an anti-Japanese alliance in 1931, 1934, and 1937, all to no avail. Finally, inasmuch as the U.S. committed to Filipino independence early in the war, all this talk about the evils of someone else's colonialism ignores the fact that we took over the Philippines from the Spanish, even though they were half a world away and had nothing to do with the Cubans that we were supposedly assisting in their struggle for independence, and that we happily hung onto, abused, and exploited the Philippines for five decades more. Bernard Fall tears into all of this, how the Americans were in some ways complicit in the situation in the Pacific that had facilitated the Japanese conquest, and how in some ways they were mistaken about it, like FDR's incredibly negative characterization of French development in Indochina. But I think despite all the hypocrisy that he is correct about, in the end, Fall misses the forest for the trees here. As far as Indochina is concerned, for whatever reason, FDR became a staunch anti-colonialist during the war, to the point of letting the Philippines go, and for whatever reason, he was particularly concerned with Indochina and particularly loath to let the French have it back. We see further evidence of the ruthless Nazi war machine in action on the Russian front. In the ghastly turmoil of battle, the invading Huns fling their weight against the Soviet lines, shelling the Russian tanks at point-blank range with anti-tank and siege guns. In the region of Brest-Litovsk, the German thrust at the USSR was held up by a destroyed bridge across the river Bug. The Nazis have admittedly penetrated many miles into Soviet territory, but the same remorseless giant that is Russia, which has already claimed two million German casualties, is devouring the Nazi hordes, just as the Cossacks pursued and destroyed Napoleon's invading army. Reproduced from the Nazi papers are these in-memoriam notices. Hitler's latest demand on Germany is that one in every family must die for the Fuhrer. Was it here that Hermann Schmidt perished? A flight of After a year of setting up the Viet Minh, detailing cadres to different parts of the country and getting training schools and camps set up near the cave in Kaobang, Ho set off for China again. He had two objectives. The first was to get in touch with Chiang Kai-shek's Kuomintang government. The tense truce between Chiang and the communists was still holding, and Ho needed Chiang's at least tacit support for his new venture, in case they had to flee across the border again. Second, he wanted to make contact with the Chinese communists in some small part to touch base with them, but mostly to check in with Moscow and explain what he was doing with his new popular front, i.e. the Viet Minh. Ho was arrested by a southern Chinese warlord almost immediately after his crossing. The exact reasons here are murky, but it was either because this nominally Kuomintang dude didn't like Ho's communism, truce be damned, or because Ho explicitly refused to seat a majority of pro-Chinese Vietnamese in the leadership of the new Viet Minh. In any case, he entered his Chinese prison on August 28, 1942, and if Chinese jails are bad now, and they are, a warlord's stockade during a war was worse. Ho's internment was unpleasant, being moved constantly, kept in stocks, deprived in some part of food. A few of our authors have noted that Ho never produced anything like Mao's Little Red Book, but they do say that if there was anything as widely read among his admirers, it would be his prison poetry. I'm not going to read any of it here, because Vietnamese verse translates about as well as the Chinese does, but I'll link some for you in the show notes if you're into it. 
We haven't heard much from Michael McClear yet, but his book, Vietnam, The 10,000-Day War, cites one major Archimedes Patty pretty heavily at the outset. Patty was a higher-up in the OSS mission to the Chinese government in Chongqing. And man, I am not going to pronounce the Chinese right here in as much as I grew up for four years in China, but if you want to look this up, it's C-H-O-N-G-Q-I-N-G. It's spelled sometimes in the older sources as Chongqing. Whether Major Patty was in charge there, or only once he got detailed to Vietnam, remains unclear to me. Five different books have mentioned five different Americans as being quote-unquote in charge of OSS operations, so leave that to one side. Patty was important, and he says that, quote, Ho's name first popped up in State Department files in 1942, unquote. On hearing that Ho had been jailed by the U.S.'s Chinese nationalist allies, Washington, quote, blew the roof, unquote, and directed its diplomats in China to let Ho out. The exact reasoning here is likewise unclear, but it was probably along the lines that the U.S. had headed up to here with nationalist-communist infighting in China, and that they'd be damned if some warlord was going to cut off the leader of what looked like the most likely independence movement to wrest Indochina from either the Japanese or the French, whichever came first. So the Americans got Ho out, and we next find him a free man in September 1943, that is a year and two months later, ostensibly working for the Kuomintang in South China, as he had been all those years before in the 1920s. Fall explains this new cooperation by writing that his imprisonment had convinced Ho that the Kuomintang, and in particular its unruly southern warlords, were for the moment much closer and more powerful than his Chinese communist allies, and that for the time being they had to be his principal allies full stop. They wanted to form another Vietnamese nationalist group, whose name is so close to the Viet Minh's that I'm not even going to give it to you, and Ho agreed. The ICP was to be barred from this new group, but the Viet Minh was to be part of it. And from the very first meeting in October 1943, when the other pro-Chinese members fell to bickering and Ho's boys fell to planning, the Viet Minh ended up with the vast majority of the organization's Chinese provided $100,000 a month and the bulk of its portfolio, which was fighting the Japanese and working for Vietnamese independence. The Chinese-sponsored group struggled on until 1944 and then dissolved. But really, forget all that, because as Fall writes into Vietnam's, as of 1943, quote, Ho and his men were in the saddle, never to leave it again, unquote. Things went real well for the Viet Minh in these years, from 1943 to 1945. By being only implicitly anti-French and explicitly anti-Japanese, they managed to be, and more importantly, appeared to be, the only legitimately nationalist group at work on the scene. Others, who had either partnered with the French against the Japanese, or with the Japanese against the French, were all in the end discredited, as both foreign occupiers fought against any and all independence movements. By early 1943, according to Logval, the Viet Minh had established territorial control through much of the Tonkinese highlands. These were areas that the French had never been particularly interested in anyway, so they didn't have to fight too hard to get them. But the Viet Minh were laying the foundations for future struggle, up to and including incorporating the non-ethnically Vietnamese hill peoples who would serve them later on. Through 1943 and on to the end of the war, Ho sought to balance the Japanese, the Chinese nationalists, and the French, who he was sure would return in force at the end of the conflict. And given that the American liaisons to the Kuomintang government in South China had already taken an interest in him, he took an interest in them as a counterweight to the other factions involved. As McClear reports, quote, 
After the Americans obtained his release, Ho went to the wartime capital of Chongqing and provided intelligence and translation services for the U.S. Office of War Information there, unquote. And as Fall wrote in the notes that became last reflections on a war, quote, the relationship was no one-way street. Ho needed weapons, training, and above all, some counterweight to the warlords. The OSS, for its part, needed intelligence from Vietnam and some means of rescuing American pilots shot down during air raids over Indochina. Ho's guerrillas could provide both, and did, unquote. Just to make all of this clear, because it might not be obvious why or even exactly how American pilots were being shot down over Vietnam, let me explain real quickly here. The Chinese Republic's provisional capital was at Chongqing, or Chongqing, oh man, in southern central China, about halfway down where the wing would be attached if you imagine China as shaped like a chicken. The U.S. commander of the Southeast Asian Command, SEAC, Joseph Stilwell, was based out of this city and provided both military advice and supplies to Chiang Kai-shek's government. Those supplies came first by way of Indochina, until the Japanese choked them off, and then by way of the Burma Road through British colonial territory until the Japanese plugged that one up too. Which, by the way, is the subject of The Bridge on the River Kwai, whose original novel was written by a Frenchman who worked in British Malaya and who fell in love with the wife of a French Indochina administrator. He also, by the by, wrote Planet of the Apes. Once British Burma was out of the picture, SEAC, Southeast Asian Command, started flying supplies in over the Himalayas from British India. The guys who did it were General Claire Chinot's Flying Tigers, a group of volunteer American airmen based out of Kunming, a Chinese city close to the Vietnamese border, the city where Ho and his boys did most of their business with the Kuomintang. Those guys, Chino's flying tigers, when they weren't making supply runs, they were strafing and bombing the Japanese all over China and down into Tonkin, which is why Ho ended up plucking downed American pilots from the Vietnamese jungle. As Fall wrote in Last Reflections, through all of these contacts, quote, all the Americans who knew Ho then agree that he was a, quote, awfully sweet old guy who, far from selling the communist line, was interested in one single thing only, national independence for Vietnam, unquote. After those initial contacts, which were apparently pretty casual, Logoval notes, for example, that Ho sometimes dropped by the U.S. War Office in Kunming to read Time magazine, one Charles Fenn of the OSS told his people to get Ho on the line. Ho Chi Minh had probably been making those magazine-reading troops in order to be strongly flirtatious in this direction, and soon enough, he, Captain Fen, and Ho's non-Giap right-hand man, Pham Van Dong, were sitting down to tea in Kunming. From Logoval, quote, The three conversed in French. Fen asked what Ho wanted from the United States. Only recognition for the Viet Minh, came the reply. But what about the rumors that it was a communist organization, Fen asked. The French label communist all animites who want independence, Ho said, neatly evading a direct answer. When Fenn suggested the possibility of mutual assistance, Ho readily agreed, unquote. At a second meeting, Ho and Fenn agreed to trade American arms and, even more importantly, American field radio equipment for intelligence gathering, pilot rescue, and sabotage operations on the part of the Viet Minh. Fenn also agreed to arrange, at Ho's request, an autograph meeting with General Cheneau, the head of the Flying Tigers. In April 1944, the Americans flew Ho down to the border, and by the end of that spring, OSS teams had dropped into the Viet Minh base at Pak Bo, set up radio contact with SEAC in Kunming, and started delivering supplies, medicine, arms, and weapons training. 
and OSS Medic also diagnosed Ho with malaria and dysentery and treated him, possibly saving his life in the Viet Minh Revolution. From Lugaval again, quote, To a remarkable degree, Ho made a winning impression on these Americans, who invariably described him as warm, intelligent, and keen to cooperate with the United States. As a sign of friendship, they named him OSS Agent 19, unquote. Major Patty, Major Archimedes Patty, from McClear's book, said, quote, I was aware that Ho Chi Minh was a communist, or had been in Moscow and had some training there, and that his Viet Minh had a party line, unquote. But Patty was into Ho, quote, strictly from the viewpoint that would actually be of assistance to my intelligence mission. From a practical standpoint, Ho and the Viet Minh appeared to be the answer to my immediate problem of establishing relations in Indochina, unquote. As far as that party line itself, Ho didn't strike Patty, quote, as a starry-eyed revolutionary or a flaming radical. I saw that his ultimate goal was to attain American support for the cause of a free Vietnam, and felt that desire presented no conflict with American policy, unquote. Patty, as that might have indicated, was in touch with FDR's stated, though not really official, feelings on Vietnam. Quote, I personally admired Roosevelt. I was in full agreement with his philosophy of relieving the subject people of Southeast Asia from the previous history of colonial burden, unquote. All of which I take to mean that Patty really had a pretty accurate impression of both Ho and the Viet Minh, and that rather than being naive about how radical they really were, he just didn't care, since they would be a problem for the colonial French oppressors, not him, and despite their communism, seemed just fine palling around with the United States. Likewise, a lot of the old China hands were even by this point totally disillusioned with nationalist forces in the region, especially Chiang Kai-shek's Kuomintang, which was incredibly ineffective, corrupt, and much more concerned with selling American military supplies or turning them on the Chinese communists than using them against the Japanese. Those same China hands had an admiration for the Chinese communists, and for Ho's, for the dedication, their perseverance through years of grueling guerrilla war, and their effectiveness over and against the nationalists. We'll come back to that admiration in a few years, because it's going to get a lot of those old China hands into a whole heap of trouble. Flying Tigers, the famous American volunteer group, wing their way across China for the last time as volunteers. For eight months, these Chinese signs have been the only insignia of the most spectacular and efficient fighting force in aviation history. Now, wearing the emblem of their native land, the U.S. Air Force, they become regular officers with American flying forces fighting in China. A Jap flag for every plane shot down. 200 in less than four months. Leader of the volunteers, Brigadier General Cheneau, now promoted to command all American flying forces in China. Here he outlines the field of operations. With flags and souvenirs, a grateful Chinese people pay simple tribute to the airmen who have done so much to clear the skies over their embattled land. Clearing the skies for much-needed supplies. Supplies which in turn are exchanged for the valuable raw products of China. Losing no time, the new command plots the strategy of attack. By an elaborate far-flung system of Chinese listening posts, word is flashed, Japanese planes on the way, and the red ball goes up over the field. Signal for pilots to take to their ships. 
the Flying Tigers going into action for the first time in the uniforms of Uncle Sam. So, 1944. The first big event of the year for us was a pronouncement made by General de Gaulle, leader of the Free French, from liberated Algeria. There was no love lost, as we've seen, between the Viet Minh and the Vichy colonial administration, but the Vietnamese insurrectionaries had some hopes that the Free French movement, relying as it had to on France's overseas colonies, might see those territories in a new light after the war. De Gaulle torched those hopes. He spoke in this broadcast of, quote, France's need to reestablish her authority in Indochina, unquote. The Viet Minh responded, saying, quote, So the French, themselves struggling against German domination, hope to maintain their domination over other peoples. We Indochinese protest most strongly against the inconsistency of the Algiers Committee, that is, de Gaulle's committee. By working for the establishment of a broadly based anti-fascist front in Indochina, we want to deliver ourselves as well as anti-fascist foreigners from the oppression of the Nipponese fascist militarists, that is, the Japanese but to suggest that we are thereby sacrificing our national independence, since de Gaulle had characterized their struggle as the same as that of the Maquis, the French resistance in defense of greater France, in favor of domination by the Gaullists or anyone else, is pure sophistry, unquote. By the end of July 1944, the Kaobang Highlands had been in the hands of the guerrillas, defended with at least some amount of actual violence against French recapture. Those Viet Minh guerrillas were commanded by Vo Nguyen Jap, an ex-history teacher and another one of the revolutionary generation that the French had trained themselves. Reflecting Jap's attitude, the Viet Minh committee in charge of Cao Bang voted in favor of launching an out-and-out armed insurrection in Tonkin. Ho showed up and talked them out of it, saying that while the time of peace had ended, the time for general insurrection had not yet come. That sounds nearly like a Zen cone, but Ho was, as he had learned through his whole life to do, biding his time and waiting for the opportune moment. The French might be weak, but they were more numerous and better armed than the Viet Minh. Likewise, while some of Ho's younger, more fiery comrades might confuse their own enthusiasm with that of the general population and assumed that the people would rise up at the first shots fired, Ho always had a very level-headed view of his own position. They had said when they'd founded the Viet Minh that they would wait for the Japanese to overthrow the French, and the time had not yet come. By mid and late 1944, FDR was still thinking about Indochina and had still not convinced enough of his allies to agree on what to do with it post-war. The U.S. had been steadily pushing the Japanese back across the Pacific since midway in June 1942. The Russians won the Battle of Stalingrad in February 1943 and started rolling the Wehrmacht back across the steppe. Rome was liberated five days before the Normandy landings in June 1944, and Paris followed that August. The Allies were sure of victory at this point. Now it was a matter of who would be sitting where when the peace broke out, and what the world would look like as a result. Roosevelt had already pitched some kind of independent scheme for Indochina at the Tehran Conference in 1943, and while Stalin basically told him there was no Vietnamese skin to be lost off of his nose, Churchill flatly refused to countenance any of it, both because he was worried about what would begin to happen to British possessions in Asia if the French lost theirs, and because he shared none of FDR's antipathy towards the French. 
While FDR wanted to cut post-war Paris out of power politics entirely, Churchill was convinced long before the war ended that the real enemy was the USSR, and that they ought to be doing everything they could to balance her in the post-war. FDR kept at it, though, insisting that the French would not have Indochina back after surrendering it without a fight to the Japanese, and that once it was liberated, it would be administered under an international trusteeship run by the United Nations, until it was ready for independence. Because for all his anti-colonial attitudes, FDR was sure that the French colonies weren't quite ready to make it on their own yet. The Free French had more than caught wind of FDR's maneuvering, and they were likewise at work on their own purposes. From Logoval, quote, French authorities picked up on this schism in U.S. decision-making and sought to exploit it. All too aware of the Americans' preponderant power in the Western Pacific, nothing will or can be done in Indochina without their agreement, at least tacit, one senior official reminded his colleagues. They stepped up their efforts in 1944 to re-establish France's claim to Indochina, and to do so before Washington settled on firm policy. Most important, de Gaulle reasoned, would be to get French troops involved in the campaign to liberate Indochina. He recalled candidly in his memoir, quoting him now, I regarded it as essential that the conflict not come to an end without our participation. Otherwise, every policy, every army, every aspect of public opinion would certainly insist upon our abdication in Indochina. On the other hand, if we took part in the battle, even though the latter were near its conclusion, French bloodshed on the soil of Indochina would constitute an impressive claim." Unquote. So the Free French, with the collaboration in secret of the British, started parachuting agents into Indochina as early as mid-1944. FDR personally disliked de Gaulle. He seemed to the American president to be strongly anti-democratic and more than a little fascist himself. But when the Free French participated in the liberation of Paris in 1944 and set up a provisional government to replace Vichy, he eventually had no choice but to accept de Gaulle as the head of that government. From Logoval again, quote, By mid-autumn of 1944, Roosevelt's plan for post-war Indochina was in trouble. The turmoil in China and the growing weakness of Chiang Kai-shek's Kuomintang regime, the mounting concerns about Soviet ambitions in Europe and elsewhere, and the ascendancy of de Gaulle with his commitment to maintaining the empire, all of these served to diminish the chances that France would be kept from reclaiming control of her Southeast Asian territories. Roosevelt had begun to lose control of events." Unquote. To cap off 1944, in December, Ho and Jap formed the Propaganda Unit for National Liberation, which, while it sounds a little low-key, and while it consisted in the beginning of only 34 men drawn from Jap's ranks, ended up being, basically, the nucleus of the effective parts of the Viet Minh. Listen to its founding principles, and you'll get the idea. From La Couture's political biography of Ho Chi Minh, quote, the Vietnam Propaganda Unit for National Liberation shows by its name that greater importance should be attached to the political side than to the military side. It is a propaganda unit. To act successively in the military field, the main principle is concentration of forces. Therefore, in accordance with the new instruction of the organization, the most resolute and energetic officers and men will be picked out of the ranks of the guerrilla units in the provinces of Khao Bang, Bak Khan, and Lang Sun, and a great amount of weapons will be concentrated to establish our main force. Because ours is a national resistance by the whole people, we must mobilize and arm the whole people. Therefore, when concentrating our forces to set up the first unit, we must maintain the local armed forces, coordinate their operations, and assist each other in all respects. 
On its part, the main unit has the duty to guide the cadres of the local armed units, assist them in drilling, and supply them with weapons if possible, thus helping these units to grow unceasingly. With regard to local armed units, we will gather their cadres for training, send trained cadres to various localities to exchange experience, maintain liaison, and coordinate military operations. Concerning tactics, we will apply guerrilla warfare, which consists in being secret, rapid, active, now in the east, now in the west, arriving unexpectedly and leaving unnoticed. The Vietnam Propaganda Unit for National Liberation is the first-born unit. It is hoped that other units will soon come into being. At first, its size is small. However, its prospect is brilliant. It is the embryo of the Liberation Army and can move from north to south throughout Vietnam." Unquote. That strategy, and the unit that it grew into, could as easily have served as an outline for the forces of the Viet Minh that would throw the French out of the country, and later for the forces of what we came to call the Viet Cong that did the same to us. The Atlantic Wall has been penetrated. There, after the first assault, the Allies clung precariously to a few beaches. But now they have a solid foothold on Fortress Europa. Men and material have poured onto the newly won beachheads with every favorable tide, and on some unfavorable ones. The Allied command has announced that the Battle of the Beaches is complete. The tremendous offensive was bitterly contested. The Nazis knew that each passing hour diminished their chances of throwing the Allies back into the sea. But the American, British, and Canadian troops pressed forward firmly onto the soil of France and made contact with the French people. This was no pushover driving the Germans back. Some of our troops dropped within yards of the water's edge. There were two enemies, the Germans and the heavy seas. German prisoners were taken almost at once. American and British aircraft supported the shock troops magnificently, preventing the Germans from marshalling reinforcements. American marauders plastered peaceful-looking forests, the hiding places of Nazi tank formations and vicious dumps of high explosives. As 1945 dawned, the post-war was beginning to come into sharper and sharper focus, with more and more French and American attention going to Indochina as a result. The French were parachuting in operatives and pressuring the Americans to allow regular French troops to participate in its Pacific operations against the Japanese. The Americans, at a February meeting with Ho in Kunming, promised further small arms to the Viet Minh and detailed several OSS deer teams to their highland headquarters. The Japanese, for their part, were growing increasingly wary of the French armed forces still in Indochina, now that Vichy was gone and the Allies were drawing ever nearer across the Pacific. Trying to work against the French, too, Roosevelt ordered American forces in Southeast Asia to categorically refrain from aiding any French force, regular or guerrilla, Gaullist or collaborationist, or otherwise, whether it was fighting the Vietnamese or the Japanese. The only concession on this front was that the OSS asked the Viet Minh not to turn any donated guns on the French. At the time, these were all moves made purely to thwart future French colonial intentions, but as Fall noted in Last Reflections, quote, translated into actual military terms, those instructions meant an automatic death sentence for any French attempt at organized resistance in case of Japanese attack, 
And that is exactly the way that it turned out, unquote. We're getting pretty long in the episode now to be indulging in more esoterica, but right around this point in January 1945, one of our authors parachuted into occupied Vietnam. Paul Muse, the Indo-Chinese-raised French colonial anthropologist who wrote Vietnam, Sociology of a War, the English sort of translation of which is called The Vietnamese and the Revolution, that we're using, fought for the French in Belgium, escaped occupied France to join the Free French, and then got detailed as liaison to a possible uprising against the Japanese in Indochina. Anyway, Paul Muse, he parachutes into the jungle in Vietnam, makes his way to Hanoi, posing as an agent of the still-in-place pro-Vichy colonial administration, and starts testing the waters vis-a-vis an uprising coordinated with an allied amphibious landing. Muse doesn't make much headway, because the French authorities in Indochina at the time were much more concerned about the growing territorial control of the Viet Minh in the north of Tonkin than they were about throwing out the Japanese. In fact, colonial authorities in Hanoi spent the early part of 1945 putting together an expedition to wipe the highlands clear of Viet Minh rebels, which was set to start on the 12th of March. The force that they'd put together was massive compared to Ho and Vo Nguyen Jap's small bands of freedom fighters, and if they'd marched off into the jungle, Vietnamese independence might have gone under then and there. Unfortunately for them, from Logoval, quote, Shortly after 6 p.m. on March 9, 1945, a visitor arrived at the opulent Saigon offices of the French Governor General, Admiral Jean Decaux. It was Shunichi Matsumoto, Japan's ambassador to Indochina, there ostensibly for the purpose of signing a previously worked out agreement concerning rice supplies and French financial support for Japanese troops. As the signing ceremony ended, Matsumoto asked Decaux to linger for a private conversation. Matsumoto appeared nervous, the Frenchman later recalled, something rare in an Asiatic. It soon became clear why. Tokyo had ordered the ambassador to present an ultimatum, which required unconditional French acceptance no later than 9 o'clock that same evening. The entire colonial administration, including army, navy, police, and banks, were to be placed under Japanese command. Now Tokyo had issued a demand that, if agreed to, would abolish French colonial control over Indochina. Decaux played for time, but Matsumoto did not budge. The deadline was firm. The Frenchman consulted with several associates, and at 8.45 sent a letter via messenger urging a continuation of the discussions beyond the 9 o'clock deadline. The letter carrier went to the wrong building, and it was not until 9.25 that he could at last present the letter to Matsumoto. By then, reports of fighting in Hanoi and Haiphong had already come in. Matsumoto scaled the document, declared this is doubtless a rejection, and ordered the Japanese military machine into action, unquote. The French garrisons in Indochina inexcusably were caught off guard. While they had spent little time and resources surveilling the Japanese, the occupiers had not paid them the same compliment. The Japanese had cracked the French codes months beforehand and knew that the French were totally unprepared for an attack. Likewise, while the French had suspected that something like this might be imminent, and had even drawn up plans for just such an occasion, they'd been focused so tightly on the Viet Minh that they failed entirely to put those plans into action. Most of the French high command was captured at dinner, since they'd been invited to eat by their Japanese counterparts as part of the plan. Generals Sabatier and Alessandri escaped with their troops into the northwest near the Thai border in the mountains, setting up camp in an obscure valley known as Dien Bien Phu. A few smaller groups in Cochin China made their way into the swamps of the Kamau Peninsula at the southern tip of Vietnam and began a guerrilla resistance. A couple of forts held out, rather than surrendering. 
When the Japanese assaulted and captured the garrison at Brier de Lille, they machine-gunned a fort's worth of prisoners, reports fall, as they sang the Marseillaise. Lang Sun, a fort on the border with China, likewise put up a fight. It got into radio contact with Sabatier at Dien Bien Phu, who began calling for American aid from Kunming in China as soon as he had his antenna set up. General Clerc Cheneau of the Flying Tigers got the call, and immediately dispatched small liaison aircraft to Dien Bien Phu to figure out exactly how much of what the French needed dropped and where. At Lang Sun, the Japanese brought the province's captured military governor and civilian counterpart out in front of the fort and demanded that they order the garrison to surrender. Both refused and both were beheaded before the Japanese began to assault the fort in earnest. Sabatier continued to listen in on developments from Dien Bien Phu. From fall, quote, No major airdrops materialized from the Americans, and many urgent radio messages simply went unanswered. Doomed Lang San also was calling for air support. The last message from the garrison that Sabatier's headquarters received said, Still holding three-fourths of the citadel. No water. Request air support and supply drops. Where are the Americans? The garrison was massacred by the Japanese. Only one man survived, after having been left for dead among the heaps of bodies thrown pell-mell into an open ditch." Sabatier, for his part, received word there in Dien Bien Phu that General, now President, de Gaulle had appointed him chief military commander for all Indochina, and that he had demanded that Sabatier maintain an active military resistance in the country until the Allies could arrive. But with no help forthcoming from the Americans in China and no material aid from his own government in Paris, Sabatier was forced to retreat in the face of Japanese attacks and take his troops over the border into China. Where then had Cheneau and the Americans got to? The head of the Tigers himself wrote, cited in Last Reflections from Fall, quote, that orders arrived from theater headquarters stating that no arms and ammunition would be provided to French troops under any circumstances. General Wedemeyer's orders not to aid the French came directly from the War Department. The American government was interested in seeing the French forcibly ejected from Indochina, so the problem of post-war separation from their colony would be easier, unquote. All of that sounds pretty heartless, but I'm not sure it has to be if we're as brilliant and forward-thinking as FDR was. If the French maintained a large military presence in Vietnam, rather than being resoundingly defeated by the Japanese, they would have had a much stronger claim to owning that territory in the post-war. FDR likewise knew that there was already a very well-organized, if not yet very large, guerrilla resistance movement in place. He also knew, from the U.S.'s own experience in the Philippines at the turn of the century, that eradicating such a movement would require orders of magnitude more loss of life than the Japanese were meeting out against the French right at this moment. And finally, though I'm not sure about the moral soundness of the argument, I think at least some of this is basically, well, this is what you get for trying to hold on to something that was never yours in the first place. Although that was cold comfort for the French soldiers who weren't exactly personally responsible for the original occupation or the continuing colonization of Vietnam. A day after the Japanese launched their coup, March 10th, already in control of everything but Lang Son and Dien Bien Phu, they announced to the emperor Bao Dai in Hue that his country was now independent. From fall, quote, On the following day, after deliberation with his cabinet ministers, Bao Dai repudiated the Protectorate Treaty of 1885 and expressed the confidence of the government of Vietnam in Japan's loyalty and its own determination to collaborate with Japan within the framework of the greater East Asian co-prosperity sphere. As Fall went on to say, France's rule over Vietnam had lasted a few months less than 60 years. Considering Vietnam's 2,200 years of recorded history, 
It had been a very brief interlude, unquote. Paul Muse, our French colonial anthropologist and author, escaped from Hanoi during the coup and made his way back into the jungle. He was worried at the outset about what he could expect from the peasantry now as a Frenchman, help or betrayal to the Japanese. This next bit is from the introduction to Muse's book written by the American student who helped to translate the work into English, which is why it's in third person rather than first. Quote, the peasants of the Delta would help him escape, all right. But it was a paternalistic gesture, and though they were not discourteous, they took care to make him aware of it. Even in the most remote villages, the peasants knew that the positions of power in Indochina were now reversed. Their prescience and self-confidence made them seem like a company of actors suddenly adapting to new roles in a new play, even though their previous production closed only the night before. This was not a time for revenge. It was simply a time to remind Frenchmen that the Vietnamese have a sense of order of things, which often expresses itself in a sudden and complete change of mind. Such change is, for them, inevitable. It occurs in response to a greater power than man. It is a tide running in the affairs of men, which reaches its flood and then recedes. It is natural. It is, the Vietnamese believe, heaven. And when the will of heaven is expressed, then men must adapt to it. They must synchronize anew their movement, their lives, to a new order. There is no compulsion. They simply assume their role in a new drama. 1945 was a time of such change. For decades, the Vietnamese had acquiesced to French rule despite its vulnerabilities. Now the vulnerabilities were exposed for all to see, and the acquiescence had come to an end. Frenchmen would not believe it. They would try to restore their rule with the same increments of power, troops, police, administrators they had before 1945, but it would not work. The French would blame outside influences for their agony, but the cause would lie in the mind of the people." Unquote. Muse made it out to Dien Bien Phu and accompanied Sabatier's forces into China. He would be back in Hanoi later on and would spend a lot of the years until 1954 trying to tell the Frenchmen in power about the Vietnamese people, about the mandate of heaven, about the balance of their society, about their culture, and about what the French could do to coexist with them. Muse was, in that curious way that sometimes happens to the insightful counselor, fired from every advisory position he had been appointed to. He enjoyed the same basic fate as George Kennan, right every time, and pushed out of power and into academia because of it. The defeat of the French and the sort of admission of independence to Bao Dai was, of course, the moment that the Viet Minh had been waiting for. They began to send cadres down out of the hills to start organizing in the cities and the delta villages from the north to the south of the country. They were helped out, unfortunately, by tragedy. 
The rice crops in the north in 1944 and 1945 were bad. Disastrously bad. Major flooding and insect infestation had devastated harvests, and stockpiles were at that point already next to nothing because of French and Japanese military requisitions. As Fall says, even so, quote, In peacetime, this was a minor problem, since from its traditional surpluses, South Vietnam could be counted on to ship north via boat and train the quarter million tons of rice necessary to tide the North Vietnamese over until the next crop. But in 1945, strategic bombing had hacked the Trans-Indochinese Railroad to pieces, and all the French and Japanese ships in Vietnamese ports had been sunk by the Allies, unquote. The new independent Vietnamese administration, meanwhile, wasn't up to the task of any kind of management. Bao Dai's ministers, who were really just the hangers-on around his palace, became ministers of government, and the rest of the cabinet filled up with the political bickerers from the cities, rather than men and women of action, like, say, the Viet Minh. The Japanese, in the wake of the coup, seized the French military stockpiles before the Vietnamese could liberate them. In the north, years' worth of hunger turned to famine, and the Tonkinese began to die by the thousands. From Logoval, quote, In many areas, streets were littered with dying peasants, and ox carts filled with corpses were a common sight. Families roamed from village to village, hoping to find grain, or they retreated to their homes, shared the few remaining morsels, and died quietly, one by one. Some people, having consumed everything that could be eaten, bark, roots, leaves, dogs, and rats, resorted to cannibalism, causing parents to fear that their children would be stolen and eaten. A French observer, perhaps aware of his country's failure over the previous decades to develop an effective system for the prevention and relief of famine, a perennial kind of disaster, despite pleas for them after each crisis, had this to say. From looking at these bodies, which are shriveled up on roadsides with only a handful of straw for clothes as well as for the burial garment, one feels ashamed of being human, unquote, and unquote. Definite figures for this famine are tough to come by, but estimates climbed over the next decades to 300,000 dead in Anan, and 2 million, or 1 in 5 men, women, and children dead in Tonkin in just 5 months. The Viet Minh, as Logoval writes, quote, benefited from the widespread popular perception that they alone had tried hard to reduce the suffering, unquote, because largely, they alone had tried hard to reduce the suffering. Cadres led rice revolts, breaking into warehouses and military stockpiles to give grain to the people. And across the country, the Viet Minh organized food distribution networks for what little sustenance was available. Into the spring of 1945, as the worst of the famine slacked off, the Viet Minh found themselves in a better and better position, while French hopes dwindled and the Japanese turned their attention towards the Americans. After Bao Dai formed his independent government at the behest of the occupiers, the kings of Cambodia and Laos did the same, breaking the artificially united Indochina back into its constituent countries. The Japanese had removed the French and their very effective secret police before mostly ignoring the Vietnamese, and the Viet Minh guerrillas made steady progress down from the northern hills and into the villages and towns of the Red River Delta. Ho, seeing the Americans closing in across the Pacific, and his own position broadening within Vietnam as the summer rolled around, issued an official change to front policy. On June 4, 1945, he grouped his occupied territories into one free zone, basically a Viet Minh state within a state, and grouped his guerrillas and fighters into an army of liberation under Giap. In the same way that the French had desperately wanted to keep some small number of soldiers on Vietnamese territory, Ho knew he could only improve his position by forming an army and stationing it on land that was, officially, if tenuously, 
his. Their next move was as unexpected for the French and Americans as it was for me, and will probably be for you. The French had begun detailing their secret service operatives to Kunming, just like the OSS under the Americans, and in May 1945, one Major Jean Centeni arrived in China. The Viet Minh heard about these doings through their American deer teams, and by midsummer, the Viet Minh had decided that it was time to make contact with the French. Not the Colognes, but the Free French. By way of the Americans in the Kunming OSS mission in July, the Viet Minh passed this memo in English to Centeni. Quote, 1. That there will be universal suffrage for the election of a parliament to govern this country. That it have a French governor to act as president until independence is assured us. That this president choose a cabinet or group of councillors approved by parliament. The precise powers of all these offices will be determined in the future. 2. That independence will be granted this country within no less than five years and no more than ten. 3. That the country's natural resources be returned to its inhabitants after making fair compensation to their present holders. That France be given economic concessions. 4. That all freedoms set forth in the United Nations be guaranteed to the Indo-Chinese. 5. That the sale of opium be forbidden. We hope that these conditions will be judged acceptable by the French government." This memo, this incredibly moderate memo, served two purposes. The first was genuine, take it on its face. The United States had promised something almost exactly alike to its subjects in the Philippines, and it might have felt like a reasonable compromise to the Vietnamese and the Viet Minh in particular. They recognized, as is frankly true, that colonies are better off when they've had a short training period in self-rule, and they afforded the French economic concessions, which is pretty much what a colony was giving them in the first place. Its second purpose was as a hedge if they couldn't take the country before the French made their way back, with or without Allied help, if they couldn't throw the French out in short order, if any one of a number of things happened, this wouldn't be such a bad compromise to fall back on. Likewise, if all of those things went right, they could just quietly forget that they'd ever had to make this offer. The Frenchman, Jean Santani, liked the sound of the document, in any case, but he wasn't empowered to make any kind of political decision regarding the country, and he passed the note upwards. When the Viet Minh checked in through the month, he told them the truth, that he didn't know if anyone above him had read it at all. With a continuing, firm American commitment to Vietnamese independence after the war, this agreement, like at so many points in the past, might have been the end of the whole Indochina conflict. Unfortunately, American resolve in the person of Franklin Delano Roosevelt had failed. FDR passed away after a massive cerebral hemorrhage on the 12th of April his body destroyed by the burdens of the country, the world, and the war. He had left almost all of his work completed. Mussolini was executed by the new Italian government, and Hitler committed suicide just weeks later. The conference that founded the United Nations began on the 25th of April. VE Day was declared on the 8th of May. The problem of Indochina had not been solved, however, and Harry Truman, who came into office with next to no foreign policy experience, had nothing of the same care for or interest in the country as his predecessor. Truman, as many would argue he had to be, was narrowly focused on balancing against the Soviets in Europe. While old Asia hands and members of the Kunming mission, like General Wedemeyer, continued to press FDR's line, pro-French elements in the State Department, helped along by Churchill's continuing insistence on a strong France, pushed Truman in the other direction and his administration would end up begrudging little to Paris, as long as it secured French cooperation in Europe. 
An interagency discussion in Washington in the month of FDR's death yielded from Logoval, quote, a State Department recommendation that the United States not oppose a French return, but merely seek assurances from Paris that it would grant more self-government and increased local autonomy. Though termed a compromise, the recommendation in fact marked a sharp departure, unquote. By the end of July, the Viet Minh had received no reply from the French with regard to their offer, and in fact, shortly the world would know that it had been rejected, and that despite continuing cooperation between Americans like Archimedes Patty and his dear teams with the Viet Minh on the ground, that the United States had abandoned the Vietnamese. At the Allied Potsdam Conference at the end of July, although de Gaulle was not invited, the French were granted virtually everything they could have wanted in Indochina. If and when the Japanese surrendered, the British would occupy the southern half of the country, up to the 17th parallel, and the nationalist Chinese would occupy the north down to the same line. The French, for their part, would be allowed to deploy troops and participate in surrender ceremonies in both halves of the country. Part of that decision was just Truman's and the winning elements in the State Department's inclination to favor the French. The rest of it, though, was down to that the French were already threatening non-participation in NATO, the Marshall Plan, and any other American schemes to rebuild and reunite Western Europe if they were not awarded their former colony in return for cooperation, a tactic that Truman's Secretary of State Dean Acheson called blackmail. Was this a good decision on the part of the Americans? Was it a bad one? Was it necessary in view of the burgeoning Cold War, regardless of any moral obligations the Americans might have owed to colonized peoples in general and to their Viet Minh allies in particular? Well, as Logoval notes, quote, cooperation from Paris would be needed to check possible Soviet expansionism, a specter which was made more real by Moscow's tightening grip in 1945 over Poland, Romania, and Bulgaria, unquote. John Lewis Gaddis, in Strategies of Containment, writes, and he's talking specifically about the Marshall Plan, but he illuminates general thinking here too, quote, several premises shaped the Marshall Plan that the gravest threat to Western interests in Europe was not the prospect of Soviet military intervention, but rather the risk that hunger, poverty, and despair might cause Europeans to vote their own communists into office, that American economic assistance would produce immediate psychological benefits and later material ones that would reverse this trend, that the Soviet Union would not itself accept such aid or allow its satellites to, thereby straining its relationship with them, and that the United States could then seize both the geopolitical and moral initiative in the emerging Cold War, unquote. So, did the United States need French participation not just in its future defensive arrangements in Europe, namely NATO, but also in its economic redevelopment plan? Yes, absolutely. General de Gaulle's government was already at this point a third communist and socialist, and while it's doubtful that even a fully socialist French government would have followed the directives of the Comintern, it was somewhat reasonable for American policymakers at the time to believe that it would. But was it necessary to give away the game in Indochina, to secure that cooperation, to give in to French demands? That's hard to say, but my feeling is that it was not. Whatever the national pride of the men governing in Paris, especially de Gaulle, I'm not sure that they could have stood up to their own people when the U.S. began dispensing aid to all the other countries in Western Europe and told them, we're not taking it because they didn't give us Indochina. Even if people in Washington felt at the time that we had to offer the French something, the right something was already in our possession. The memo that the Viet Minh sent to Santeni was in English. They could have easily written it in French, since that was every educated Vietnamese person's second language, 
but they wrote it in English so that the command in Kunming could have a good, long look at it. This reasonable compromise position. In the end, though, the French got what they thought they wanted. On the American frontier with the Western family and Daniel Boone in the exciting days following the American Revolution. We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin from CBS World News. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Fulton Lewis, Jr., speaking from the Mutual Studios in New York City. This nation has suffered this day a staggering loss. At this moment at Warm Springs, Georgia, President Franklin D. Roosevelt lies with the problems of, his, of the nation finally lifted from his shoulders, stricken late this afternoon with cerebral hemorrhage. He passed away before his physicians could be of any assistance, if assistance in such a case is possible at all. Vice President Harry Truman, who from here on will be President Truman, went immediately to the White House. A special cabinet meeting was called, and we should more know more about what is going to happen in Washington as the evening wears on. But Franklin D. Roosevelt, the first president to be elected for four terms in the White House, has passed away, and that is the overshadowing shadowing of all news events that have happened or can happen for quite a while. The news from the Potsdam Conference at the end of July 1945 didn't reach the Viet Minh very quickly, and even if it had, it's unlikely that it would have changed the way they spent their next few weeks at all. On the 5th and 9th of August 1945, the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, presaging the Japanese beginning to seek an armistice on the 15th. Before that, though, and as the bombs were falling, Ho Chi Minh called a special conference of the Viet Minh and, apparently, some other as-yet-unaffiliated nationalist groups at their base areas in the northern foothills of Tonkin. Delegates from all over the country, including those representing the hill tribes in the north, set up a National Liberation Committee of Vietnam on the 13th of August, which decided to seize the country from the Japanese at that critical moment, before the Allies could arrive. The general call for insurrection from La Couture's biography, quote, The Viet Minh Front is at present the basis of the struggle and solidarity of our people. Join the Viet Minh Front, support it, make it greater and stronger. At present, the National Liberation Committee is, so to speak, in itself our provisional government. Unite around it and see to it that its policies and orders are carried out throughout the country. In this way, our fatherland will certainly win independence and our people will certainly win freedom soon. The decisive hour in the destiny of our people has struck. Let us stand up with all our strength to free ourselves. Many oppressed peoples the world over are vying with each other in the march to win back their independence. We cannot allow ourselves to lag behind. Forward, forward, under the banner of the Viet Minh Front, move forward courageously. Which I think at the end there might be a pretty stilted translation from the Vietnamese, but yeah, there you are, unquote. The French likewise saw the bombs as their cue to kick their return into high gear, and Jean Santeny got in touch with Major Archimedes Patty to talk about putting Frenchmen into Vietnam. Quoting Patty from McClear's book, quote, Santeny and several others wanted to get into Indochina before the actual Japanese surrender, before Ho Chi Minh got to Hanoi, in order to be able to have an organization of government in being. He wanted air transport, and he wanted American protection. He wanted to use the American flag. He wanted to use American uniforms for his men until they got in and over the Japanese hurdle, because the Japanese were still in command, and they were armed. Patty, as policy began trickling down from Potsdam, made arrangements to accommodate Santeny. But, from Vaudouin Jap now, quote, 
While the French were desperate to return to Indochina, the American officer by the name of Patty, for some reason not clear to us, showed sympathy for the Viet Minh's anti-Japanese struggle, unquote. So it would be a while yet before Santeni, who had flown home to Paris in late July to consult with his government, made it back to Hanoi. The Japanese, for their part, sued for surrender on the 15th of August, and the Viet Minh moved on the city themselves. Cadres in the northern capital began agitating on behalf of the Viet Minh and activating networks of contacts that they'd built up over the war years. The Japanese handed over all the powers of state to Baodai's imperial government, based out of Hue, but the people of Hanoi were looking for something a little more radical, and, in light of the recent famine, a little more effective. The next day, while Santeni was still in Kunming in southern China, waiting for American air transport, the civil servants' union called a strike. As La Couture writes, quote, In the stifling heat of Hanoi, which was relieved late in the day by heavy monsoon rain, tens of thousands of men in white shorts marched through the city, unquote. More and more unions and associations, from servants to industrial workers, joined the protests in favor of the Viet Minh and the provisional government of the National Liberation Committee. Lacatur describes the general insurrection in Hanoi beginning on the 20th of August, with Viet Minh cadres and their allies seizing the physical structures and apparatus of government. Ho arrived, more or less secretly, on the 21st. Santeni followed on the 22nd, but was immediately detained by the Japanese in the old governor's palace. He made it so late to the city because U.S. General Albert Wedemeyer prevented his travel from Kunming. Roosevelt may have already been dead, but sympathizers still lived all through the ranks of the American military and civil services. While all this was going on, the Viet Minh weren't exactly ignoring the rest of the country either. In Saigon, leaving the squabbling right-wing nationalist groups there in the dust, a cell of the Indochinese Communist Party took control of the Provisional Executive Committee of South Vietnam on the 23rd. They also seized Hue, and on the 25th of August they secured Bao Dai's abdication, and a proclamation from the same which handed his mandate of heaven to the Viet Minh's Democratic Republic of Vietnam. An account of the meeting in Hue from Logeval now, quote, A young female medical student observed the scene. The royal family was grouped on the left-hand side of the courtyard. The crowd was thronging on the right. Suddenly a man's voice cried out, From this day on, royalty is abolished in Vietnam. Bao Dai is from Hiran, the simple citizen Vin Thuy. And now citizen Vin Thuy has permission to speak. Next, Emperor Bao Dai, who looked very young, stepped forward. He addressed the crowd. Citizens, let me be understood. I prefer to be a free citizen than an enslaved king. Continuing later, the Vietnamese people do not want and cannot abide foreign domination or administration any longer, Bao Dai wrote in a letter to Charles de Gaulle in Paris. I implore you to understand that the only way to safeguard French interests and the spiritual influence of France in Indochina is to openly recognize Vietnam's independence and to disavow any idea of reestablishing sovereignty or a French administration here in any form. We could understand each other so well and become friends if you would stop pretending that you are still our masters, unquote. And last crib here for just a minute. Quote, Thus records Philip Devier, on August 25, 1945, 10 days after the Japanese capitulation, the Viet Minh controlled the entire territory of Vietnam, unquote, and unquote, and that one's from La Couture. The Viet Minh, having seized, basically, the state for themselves, set about governing. The first step there was to announce the composition of the new government, with Ho Chi Minh as the president. People still hadn't quite linked up his new name, which meant he who enlightens, with his old pseudonym, Nguyen I Quoc, which was known and loved. 
and there was a great curiosity and anticipation as they waited to find out just who the new president was. The provisional government under Ho proclaimed the Republic of Vietnam in Hanoi, which affirmed both the unity of Vietnam versus the French subdivisions and its independence from any outside power. They also redoubled their efforts to lobby Major Patty, and thus the Americans, to come down on their side rather than that of the French. Little did they know still that the Americans had already given the game away at Potsdam. Speaking of Ho Chi Minh and Major Archimedes Patty, Logoval writes, quote, One is struck in retrospect by the bond that seemed to develop between the two men, and by the extent to which Ho Chi Minh and his colleagues devoted their energies during these crucial days to Patty. At each encounter, Viet Minh officials pressed Patty regarding U.S. plans for Indochina. The list of tasks they faced as the leaders of a new government was as long as it was daunting. To build a legitimate army. To bring food to a populace still suffering from the effects of the famine. To neutralize competing Vietnamese nationalist groups. But none loomed as large as securing international help in thwarting French and perhaps Chinese designs on their country. By his own account, Patty responded cautiously promising merely to pass on messages to his higher-ups, and to refrain from revealing Ho's whereabouts to either the French or the Chinese. But more than once he also referenced Franklin Roosevelt's staunch commitment to Vietnamese self-determination, an assertion that surely raised Vietnamese hopes, but oversimplified FDR's thinking, and in any event ignored the change under Truman." Unquote. The French, meanwhile, were doing little to ease tensions. Jap visited Santeni and Patty on the 27th, and he was informed that the Chinese were about to take over down to the 17th parallel, while the British would be coming up from the south. General Leclerc, head of French forces in the region, issued a statement at about the same time saying that France would uphold her rights in Indochina, even if it had to be by force of arms. Ho and the rest of his government decided that the 2nd of September would be Vietnam's official Independence Day, and they organized a rally in Baden Square for that occasion. Here we are, finally, returned to where we started, during the cold open of the first episode. It's the first time anybody in the crowd had the opportunity to find out just what Ho Chi Minh looked like, and, maybe, just who he was. Ho read from the rostrum the words, All men are created equal. They are endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. After that rally, the government sent a delegation to the American villa. Major Patty said later, quote, They put on quite a performance. They had bands sitting outside the villa playing the Star-Spangled Banner like you'd never heard before in the Far East. Very well, a good rendition. They played God Save the King. They played the Chinese National Anthem, and they played, of course, the Soviet Workers' March, unquote. All of which was part of a conscious effort to keep the Americans on their side. The actual Declaration of Independence, too, had been partly a hedge. Well, the speech itself, given the growing tensions with Paris, had largely been a list of grievances against the French, similar to the American Declaration of Independence. What the Viet Minh were officially looking for was autonomy and national sovereignty, but within the French Union, sort of like a Canada to Britain. From Logoval, quote, On the evening of September 2nd, after witnessing the extraordinary events that day in Baden Square, Patty reported by radio to Kunming, saying, quote, from what I have seen, these people mean business, and I am afraid the French will have to deal with them. For that matter, we will all have to deal with them, unquote. The French, he concluded in another dispatch, had little chance of reasserting lasting control. Quote, political situation critical. Viet Minh strong and belligerent and definitely anti-French. Suggest no more French be permitted to enter French Indochina and especially not armed, unquote, and unquote. 
And as McClear notes, although it wouldn't become a matter of public record until Daniel Ellsberg leaked the Pentagon Papers 26 years later, Ho began almost as soon as his government was constituted, not just to lobby the Americans there in Hanoi, but to send cables and letters to the White House asking for official American recognition, citing the principles of national self-determination in the Atlantic and United Nations charters. All of which, of course, went unanswered. Below the boiling mushroom of flame and pulverized earth, first pictures of Japan's atom-bombed cities. Revealed here at ground level is a trail of devastation such as the world has never known. A single bomber, one bomb exploding 1,500 feet above the target, leaving no crater. Half a million people lived in Hiroshima, a town the size of Sheffield. Here and there, an isolated structure reminds the onlooker that here was once a city. From the man-made desert of Nagasaki and Hiroshima to the wide expanse of the New Mexico desert for the aftermath of the atomic bomb test. Equipped with meters to measure radioactivity, lead-shielded tanks bring atom scientists to inspect the results of their work. White canvas boots are worn to prevent picking up harmful particles. Geiger meters testing for deadly gamma rays reveal no injurious radioactivity, discounting Jap stories that men died in agony long after their cities were bombed. The day of days for America and her allies. Crowds before the White House await the announcement from the President that the Japs have surrendered unconditionally. I have received this afternoon a message from the Japanese government in reply to the message forwarded to that government by the Secretary of State on August 11th. I deem this reply a full acceptance of the Potsdam Declaration, which specifies the unconditional surrender of Japan. In the reply, there is no qualification. Reporters rush out to relay the news to an anxious world and touch off celebrations throughout the country. Washington is jubilant. And in Chicago, more than a million sing and dance in the streets in the biggest celebration the Windy City has ever seen. Joy is unconfined. But even as the provisional government of the Republic of Vietnam got its offices up and running, even as the country was declaring its independence, and even as it was reaching out tentatively for a compromise with the French, the consequences of the Potsdam Conference were moving into place. As September rolled by, 200,000 of Chiang Kai-shek's troops descended from the north, ostensibly to disarm the Japanese, but in point of fact to rob the country blind, and to perpetrate terrible abuses on the population. The British came up from the south, including the 979 Frenchmen who were available to join up in Ceylon, while the government in Paris prepared to send the 9th Colonial Division and more men from Madagascar to the country. No one had yet decided what exactly would happen to resolve the problem of an extant native government in Vietnam, one which had won its independence, with however much help from the Japanese. From Muse, quote, Despite their political finesse, the French still did not regard the Viet Minh as a very substantial force in Vietnamese politics. Their successes were attributed to the lack of any opposition, an analysis which conveniently led to the conclusion that once France returned in force, politics in Indochina would be put in its proper perspective. 
Perhaps a few concessions would be necessary to mollify the Viet Minh, but there was nothing in their adventures to suggest, to French eyes at least, any fundamental changes that would prevent a timely restoration of colonial rule." Unquote. An incredible misreading of the situation. The Americans in turn, at the highest levels, were supporting a French return to Indochina, but perhaps without much understanding that that return would now have to constitute a war of conquest against a native government. The Americans below, meanwhile, continued to try to collaborate with the Viet Minh, men like Major Archimedes Patty. America enjoyed an incredible high point in prestige in Asia at this moment. They'd beaten back the imperialist Japanese after one of the most devastating surprise attacks in history, liberated the Southeast Asian world, and, far from then claiming it as their own, had given the Filipinos a firm timeline for independence. All of Asia believed that Washington would do what it had not in the wake of the First World War live up to its own rhetoric on national sovereignty. But Truman was convinced that the only way to secure French participation in Europe was to allow it to proceed with its hard line in Asia. De Gaulle had said on the 24th of August that, quote, the position of France in Indochina is very simple. France means to recover its sovereignty there, unquote. From McClear's book, quote, Major Patty recalls his last meeting with Ho. He kept repeating, why doesn't the United States give us moral support? We don't want anything else, nothing but moral support. Look what you have done in the Philippines. You promised them a date for independence. You have given them independence. Why can you not do the same for us? There now came a poignant moment. The first American military officer sent to Vietnam had just learned that a fellow officer in the OSS, Colonel Peter Dewey, had become the first American to be killed in the fighting, in a Viet Minh skirmish against a French post outside of Saigon. Colonel Dewey, says Patty, had worn no insignia because the reputedly pro-colonial British commander in Saigon, General Gracie, had prohibited the display of the American flag or colors, even on jeeps, even on the uniforms, which looked very like the French uniforms. Ho responded that he would write a personal letter of condolence to the President of the United States, and Ho vowed, said Patty, that it would never, ever happen again, except over his dead body. Before I left him, said Patty, Ho gave me a message to take back to the American people that the Vietnamese loved the Americans, that they had followed its history and were looking to the United States because of the history of the Revolutionary War. They were looking to the Americans because they had promised so many things in World War I and again in World War II. And in World War II, they had delivered. And to go back and tell the Americans that the Vietnamese would never fight the Americans, unquote, and unquote. From Bernard Falls Between Two Truces, quote, On September 22nd, a few dozen tattered French soldiers the last remnants of the 11th Regiment of Colonial Infantry, freed from Japanese prisons with the help of the occupying British and the tacit consent of the Americans, seized the public buildings in Saigon that had been occupied during the last days of August by the men of the Committee of Liberation of South Vietnam. The latter considered 1945 to be year one of the new era. The French, of course, believed that the hour had come to re-establish their sovereignty. The war in Indochina began. That, my friends, is the end of the third episode on Vietnam. It's also the end of what I thought was going to be the first episode from the beginning of the show to the start of the French War. 
Hopefully the pace will pick up after this sort of trilogy, but knowing me and knowing SFD, I think it's probably not going to be the case. I wanted here at the end to add one other thought, which is that I skipped over the 1945 famine in northern and central Vietnam pretty quickly. Much more quickly than it really warranted, given the incredible death toll. One reason is that we were short on time, but given that I've come back to it here, that's not really an excellent excuse. Another reason is that there wasn't much more there in the sources than what I gave you, other than further descriptions of the starving peasantry. The third reason is more to the point, although it's going to take me a minute to get to the point. SFD is a show about history, and its focus on US foreign policy disasters is a legitimate area of history to explore. The show's less legitimate mission, one which is generally understood in serious history departments everywhere to be bad history, is to look for places to assign blame. Moral judgment is a sticky thing to get involved in if you're a real academic. I feel that in the places that I deploy it, it's worthwhile, because in the first place I want SFD to be a corrective to the ways that we thought and continue to think about our foreign policy abroad. And in the second place, I want to expose what I think might well be a powerful mechanism that's operated through our history, which is that when we've taken actions that seem to be morally wrong on their faces, but which were justified according to some understanding of realpolitik, they've tended to turn out poorly, while the reverse is also true. I think I gave so little time to the famine because in the end it's difficult to assign blame for it. The most significant actor in the tragedy was nature, the insects that came along with the rains and ruined the rice crops. But there are at least three human agents that likewise contributed in a substantive way to what went on in Tonkin and Anan in that year. The first were the French colonizers who, despite all that stuff that we mentioned from Bernard Fall, the diversification of the colonial economy and the improvements in administration through the 20s and 30s, had not managed to make provision for that most predictable and most dangerous of all situations in the Far East, crop failure and famine. In the second place, it was the Japanese occupiers who, despite their pretensions towards Asian leadership, decided that hoarding rice for the eventual Allied attack on their closest overseas territories was of more value than the lives of over two million of their Vietnamese subjects. And third, there were the Allies themselves, the British and the Americans who became so fascinated with the idea of aerial warfare and strategic bombing campaigns that they failed to do the math on their effectiveness and their consequences until after the war. And indeed, although studies have been done, the Allied powers never really reckoned with the fact that they committed war crimes in every theater by relying on high-altitude carpet bombings of civilian areas, in most cases without any tangible military effect. Strategic bombing of Vietnamese railroads and ports didn't do much, if anything, to hasten the end of the war, but the carelessness of the strategy contributed mightily to the deaths of millions of Vietnamese from famine, along with millions of Japanese and European civilians from the same and from the direct violence of the bombs. That's one lesson that can still be teased out and which will continue to be relevant for the rest of this series. You heard a little while ago in one of the transitional audio clips that we in America wage war with machines. That continued to and continues to be true until this day. We waged ineffective war with machines and massive collateral damage in Korea, and then again with even worse effects in Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. The American military machine today is more focused than ever on saving American lives through the widespread use of aerial technological warfare. 
and you can see its effects daily in the body counts coming out of Syria, Yemen, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Somalia, and what are probably a dozen other unannounced countries. I quoted T.R. Fehrenbach's book on Korea, This Kind of War, months ago in a show called American Legions. Here's that section again. Quote, But push-button warfare meant Armageddon, and Armageddon hopefully will never be the end of national policy. Americans in 1950, that is, at the beginning of the Korean War, rediscovered something that since Hiroshima they had forgotten. You may fly over a land forever. You may bomb it, atomize it, pulverize it, and wipe it clean of life. But if you desire to defend it, protect it, and keep it for civilization, you must do this on the ground, the way the Roman legions did, by putting your young men into the mud. The object of warfare is to dominate a portion of the earth with its peoples for causes either just or unjust. It is not to destroy the land and people unless you have gone wholly mad. Fehrenbach, of course, is advocating putting those young men on the ground. I come from the other side. If we have decided that our interest in a conflict is so slight, that its effect on our own country is so slim, that we are willing to risk only the expense of our missiles and not of our young men, then we ought to stay out of whatever it is entirely. We'll be watching our failures to understand that dynamic and that choice for another three decades in this series. I research, annotate, outline, script, record, edit, produce, publish, and host SFD all by my lonesome. You can help me, and I wish you would, by finding SFD's page on Facebook, by following me on Twitter, by engaging with me online, by supporting SFD's Patreon, or by doing the absolutely very least and rating SFD on the service you use to listen to it. If you think the show is smart and engaging and worth hearing, well, I've done just about everything I can to get it heard, and the rest of that is up to you. Next time, the tense peace, the beginning of the Cold War, the fall of China, the French reinvasion of their former colony, and the U.S. funding for it. I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate, and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect.